We're just going to read the word of God together. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this woman keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so, th- so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is God's word. Good morning, church. We are uh, second week into this summer going through the parables, the stories that Jesus told. And I said to you last week that stories are, are kind of a regular part of our lives. Books that we read, movies that we watch, they're all stories. But the pa- and the story is a powerful medium because it has the potential and actually does every time we hear a story is it pulls us into another world and begins to kind of speak messages to us sometimes that we are unaware of because we are actually living in the middle of a story. And what we said is what makes a story uh, powerful and significant in our lives is who is telling it and why they're telling it to us. And we began with this premise that the stories of Jesus are the greatest stories ever told. They're the most powerful stories that change the world because he loves us. It's Jesus, the one who gave his life up for us, the one who displayed love in every aspect of his life. And so we are being told a story by someone who loves us, and his goal in telling the story is that he wants more for us. And so we said these are the best stories ever. These are the ones we must take into our lives because they're told to us by someone who truly loves us. And beyond just telling us a story to entertain us for a while, or even to deliver a little bit of pithy wisdom, like a a fable or something that would somehow make us see the world a little bit differently. More than just that, these are stories told to us by one who loves us, who wants more for us. And I said to you, no matter where you are in your faith journey, who doesn't want more? And if I'm I'm betting, betting you're here because you believe there's something more, that the more you get to know God, and as Kate was saying, the more we, we see him and experience him, the more we get changed, the more we are blessed. So the stories that Jesus tell us are told to us by one who loves us and because he wants more for us. These parables, the, the stories that Jesus tell in that sense are always being told for us to find and see who God is in the story and to know more about God. And as I said to you, our lives themselves are stories that are continually unfolding. And instead of just sitting here in our own lives, in our own circumstances, trying to figure out who we are and why we're where we are and what is happening in our lives, the more we actually understand God's story and our story in the context of who he is and what his purposes are for our lives, the more our own lives make sense. And this has been my, certainly my Christian experience is the more that I have pursued God to know him, the more my own life has begun to make sense, the things going on in it. 
So we're meant to see God in the story and know him a bit more, but also find ourselves that even Jesus' audience, as he was listening and as we listened to that story that was read for us, and we're going to go into it today, we're meant to say, okay, where am I to find ourselves in the story? And then also, Jesus, in a sense, always reveals a bit more of himself in the stories that he's telling. Now, this story that was read for you about this widow is a story Jesus told to explain prayer. And it said that he told the story so that people would always pray and never give up. Now, prayer is one of those things in my life that um, I need a story like this because this is a simple story that addresses a complex matter. And prayer is one of those things Uh, and maybe you've experienced this, that is both on one hand simple and yet very complex. It's simple because it's it's conversation with God. And it's simple because many of us, uh, depending on your faith tradition or what went on in your home when you grew up, you were probably taught to pray or you saw prayer and it was probably very accessible to you and you sort of understood what it was as a child. You were talking to God. But as I have grown older, I have realized that in many ways, my life is complex. And my prayer life, therefore, sometimes is not complex enough to to meet it. I don't know how to pray about my life many times. I struggle with, as maybe you do, praying continually to a God I can't see and and can't hear with with physical eyes and ears. Praying for things perhaps that I've prayed for for a long time and then maybe something's not happening, so I'm starting to wonder, well, should I not be praying this? Or is, is God hearing me? Is this a no? Is this a not now? What does this mean? And there is a, so I think, and I think that's just part of the human experience for many of us is how do I understand what prayer is supposed to be? Like, how do I actually continually pray and not give up when I don't totally know exactly whether I'm praying for what I should be praying for or how I'm supposed to interpret the answer or lack of answer or what happens when circumstances seem to shift in the opposite direction of how I'm praying? Maybe for some of you, the prayers that you learned growing up, you, you saw it, but it be, just became a rote experience for you. At dinner, you pray. At bedtime, you pray. At special occasions, you might pray. At church, you pray a Lord's Prayer or something like that. Or we pray in the service, but it's become perfunctory for you, just a, a part of your life. And perhaps, and I don't say this as a criticism because I've, I have felt like this at times in my life too, I am praying and yet completely unaware of God's presence. So I'm saying words, as if I'm talking to God, and yet I'm not thinking about God, not expecting that he's hearing me, not aware of his presence at all. And sometimes the more routine we are in our prayers or whether prayer was only perhaps in your upbringing confined only to routines. It was only at mealtimes. It was only at bedtimes. Or it was only if we were in church. Then perhaps it gets trapped in this routine and is part of an unconscious sense of movement and yet not aware at all about communing with God. And we'd say, well, okay, so what? Well, again, I'm betting you're here because you want somehow you think that knowing God more is gonna do something for your life. Is this something you need, that you need to somehow connect with him? And prayer is the language of relationship by which we connect with God. When I do a premarital counseling for couples, I had the opportunity, Andre and Josie Ann are back, and so far so good, right? So yes, <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks. Yesterday, Mike and Laura got married. One of the things we do, and Tony and I do uh, premarital counseling with couples, is they take this survey, and it, it, it sort of measures how effective they are at, at connecting uh, across a number of levels, and it looks at finances, looks at sexuality, looks at uh, values and habits, looks at personality, and then, uh, the, but the first two, and really the first one is the most important one, which is communication. 
and it sounds cliche, but it's true all the time. Whenever I've experienced a couple who are really strong on communication, no matter what else is going on, they can pretty much get through it because communication is the basis for intimacy and connection and meaning in a relationship. And so it is in our relationship with God is that if we feel stuck or stalled out or having a hard time communicating with him, having an intimate relationship with God and all the words that we sing and all these songs are all very intimate language, right? Very strong. And some of you may be thinking, wow, that's really something powerful to say about God. I don't know if I feel that way or I don't feel like that right now. Prayer is that language in which we need to take hold of to actually commune with God. And so my hope is today as Jesus tells us the story, as we walk through the story about prayer, that maybe if you're stuck, in your prayer life, or something has stalled out, or perhaps you felt like that plane never got off the ground for me. It was always just sort of routine in this thing. If Jesus is saying, well, here I'm telling this story so that people would pray and never give up, then there's hope for us today. Now remember, as we go through this story that, that Kate read for us, we are trying to see, okay, who is God in this picture? Where am I in this picture? And where is Jesus at? It's in Luke 18, it was read for you, and it's interesting again, similar to the parable we read last week, which was later on in this chapter, Jesus sets up a story between two people. He said there's a widow and a judge. And in a sense, these two occupy the, uh, almost the extreme opposite ends of the power spectrum in that day and age. A widow, both in her uh, actual life circumstances, but even metaphorically in scripture, was a picture of someone who was completely uh, bereft of power and privilege, authority, ability. It was really one of the most vulnerable people in society, even more perhaps vulnerable than children because a widow might be caring for children herself. And yet in that culture that was male-dominated, if you did not have a man in your life, you were voiceless. And we know actually through the life of Jesus, he began to change and upend that whole social structure. But in this picture and in this day, widows and, and God's commands to his people were very strong about how they should care for widows because he, he recognized and he wanted them to see these are the most vulnerable people in society. They are people without a voice of power. And so we have this picture of this woman completely vulnerable, completely uh, dependent on someone else to help her. And a judge who in that picture is obviously is a male and in by the structure of both the religious system and the judicial system had the authority to do something. And so here's this picture of this woman coming to him and she's seeking justice, she's seeking help on his behalf. So obviously he has the power to do something. Now a couple of other items in this that are implicit that would help us realize just how desperate and weak this woman was. Normally, it would be a male kinsman who would come and advocate on, on her behalf. So if her husband died, it would be uh, a brother-in-law, it would be perhaps still a father, or somebody who was connected to her, a male who could come and be her voice because a woman had very little voice in that culture. And yet she is coming on her own. So we know there's no male kinsman. She has no power, no one to speak for her. And she's coming continually, which means she didn't have enough money to bribe him because that was the other way that th things got done. So all she has is a plea. Her, her situation, the pathetic nature of her circumstance and her absolute uh, desperate poverty and inability to have any power. And so she is coming continually again and again to this judge who has power. 
Now, it's a little bit of a startling story because we set up and say, okay, Jesus is telling these two people, we understand, we understand the power dynamic, we understand, and they would have, the listeners understood, okay, this is a bad situation, and this judge needs to do something for this woman. But it's very interesting, we get a glimpse into the mind of the judge, and he says, okay, this woman's coming again and again and again, asking for help, and he finally says, okay, I'm going to help her. She's, uh, you know, even though I'm not a good person, I don't care about God or what people think. I'm going to help her. Why? Because I'm afraid she's going to attack me. This is very strange. Somehow this man with all of the power in the situation and this woman who had nothing, not even a male uh, kinsman to advocate for her, no money to bribe. He's like, I'm worried because she keeps coming that she's going to actually hurt me. She's going to do something. This woman's crazy, in other words. So I'm just going to help her because I'm actually getting to the point where I'm worried she's going to attack me. It's so hilarious that this, would, that this man would even uh, care about this, but it's a picture of this woman who is both completely weak and yet incredibly audacious. In her circumstance, completely weak. No power, no stick to swing, nothing, no clout, and yet she is so audacious and bold and relentless that this man isn't just getting worn down, he's scared that she might do something crazy because she is so bent on justice. It's a picture of a, of a relationship that Jesus is telling to say, I want these people to not give up praying, to, to pray always and not give up. And in fact, some of the other translations, if you read them maybe in your phone or whatever in your Bible that you have, it says, Jesus told this parable, um, 18.1, to show them that they should always pray. And in others, some other translation says, not lose heart. There was a passion in this woman, a relentless pursuit of this man to give her what she needed. Now, what's going on in this parable and how does it relate to our own pursuit of prayer and pursuit of God? She was someone seeking justice. The description, obviously, in her, because she's a widow, she is in a situation where justice means someone needs to care for me. Justice says that I, though through no fault of my own, my husband has died and now I am destitute and I have no money and I have no one to speak for me or care for me. I have no other home who, that has taken me in. I am destitute. And so justice says, I, you need to give me what I need. So perhaps, and it says against her, her adversary, so perhaps someone was trying to collect a loan that her husband had against her, whatever it was, she had a personal situation where something was wrong and it needed to be made right and she was going to this judge to seek this. Jesus uses this word justice and I believe we can broadly expand it to say she was seeking that something was not right would be set right. In her case, it was her own uh, plea, her own situation. But perhaps we can expand this to this idea, and I think biblically we are able to do this, that justice is anything that we are experiencing on the earth that is not the way it was meant to be and needs to be set right. If it is a sickness that is persisting in the body and we say we weren't meant, there's something about us that says we weren't meant to decay and atrophy and fall apart. There's something every time sickness comes in our lives and even just beyond common colds, but terminal illness, some of you have battled through that. You are battling through it right now. You are battling with those who are battling through it. And there's something in you beyond just sort of a normal life. You're saying something in my body even says, no, this should not be. I, I, I don't want to decay. I don't want to fall apart. 
God, help me. Others of you perhaps are in situations where your employers are taking advantage of you. And maybe it's not so outright that you could, you, you could take them to task on it, or maybe it's just the culture of the company that you're in. But the employees are treated as numbers or units of production and are being used up, whether overtly or just subtly. And I'm not getting justice or someone is not actually upholding my cause. Maybe I'm being mistreated. Maybe I'm being disadvantaged. Maybe I'm being disadvantaged compared to my peers. Maybe I'm being maligned for my character or the fact that I would sometimes talk about my faith. There is a justice issue, that there is a power issue in your life that perhaps you are crying out to God for and say, God, this, this shouldn't be. I, the one who has more power is taking advantage of those who have less. And maybe it's not you, but you see it in the lives of people around you. There are justice issues that we are involved in as a church, in our international partnerships, in Central Asia, in Guinea, and even here in our backyard. The whole human trafficking issue is capital J, justice issue. God, this should not be. It should not be that just because of the greed of some people, they are willing to dehumanize others and trade them for money. It is a justice issue we are crying out to God for. Or perhaps there are things in your life that you're saying, God, I need this to live. This is daily bread, and you taught us to pray to Father in heaven for our daily bread, and it's not coming. Perhaps financially, a well is drying up or physically, like I said, or perhaps there is brokenness in relationships that you're saying, oh God, like this should not be. Perhaps in marriages that you're in or a marriage you know that is fractured, that is coming apart, and you're saying this is not what we committed to, this is not what is meant to be, and there is a grief, there is a call for justice. Even if you can acknowledge your own part and you're saying, God, please help. This is the widow's prayer for justice, for things that are not right to be made right. The things that are off, Jesus said, for anything to never give up and praying. And this woman is a combination of weakness. It is an acknowledgement of the fact that I cannot fix this myself. I cannot make myself well. I cannot make this relationship whole. I cannot go and shut down all of this human trafficking along Highway 7. I can't go over to Guinea and West Africa and just end poverty. I can't change my employer. I can't, I'm powerless in my workplace. It is a sense of weakness that we acknowledge with the widow. I have nothing but I am relentlessly pursuing justice. It is this strange, almost dichotomous combination of an acknowledgement of weakness and yet a relentlessness that says, I don't know anything else to do but to come to you. You seem to be the only one who can help me. It is this kind of praying that Jesus is encouraging to say, do not lose heart. Acknowledge your weakness, yes, but have a boldness to come and bang on heaven's door. And what's so interesting is the woman is bringing this weak and fearless prayer. And he was not advocating, interestingly, for this and in fact, elsewhere, he tells his disciples, don't pray like the pagans do where they just babble, where they just say the name or say something wrote over and over again. In other words, mindless prayer. This isn't about a mindless prayer where somehow we wear God down. Jesus was contrasting. He's taking this man that we know, he says right up in the story, is not a good man. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear people. It's a how much more comparison, right? Because he goes on to say in, in uh, the rest of verse 18, he says, listen to what the unjust judge says. In other words, what is the unjust judge pointing us to? He said, look at this guy. He's an unjust man. He's not, he doesn't care about people or God. 
And will not God, in other words, how much more would God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? He's contrasting this man who doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people, has no emotional relational attachment to this widow, has no reason to help her at all, and even in this case says, fine, I'll help you. How much more God, he said, for his chosen ones? What, it, what, it, what is it that we have been chosen as? Sons and daughters in the household of God, right? The scriptures tell us we have been adopted into uh, the Father's house. Jesus said, when you pray to God, call him Abba, Daddy, Father. How much more will a father who has chosen you, you didn't just by accident, you're not just someone that you, you, on your docket today, on his docket today was you. Okay, next, what do you want? That's, what a, that's the judge with this widow. He said, no, no, this is a father who went out and spent what he had to get you, to bring you into his house. You are a chosen one. How much more, if even a wicked man like this who doesn't care about people, how much more would God who chose you, loved you, and calls you son and daughter give justice to those who are crying out to him day and night? Jesus was advocating, was reminding them of something. He said, listen, in prayer, you are both weak and fearless. You are audacious. You are bold. Even more than this woman who actually put the fear of God in this man to the point that, you know, comically he was afraid of her. He said, this kind of weakness, yet this kind of boldness coming to a God who's not, you don't have to fight with him. Perhaps many of you have been feeling in your prayer life that God is like that judge, non-responsive, cold. Maybe that you think because of your tradition or because of what people have spoken to you or because of what church experience you've had that God is the kind of judge that wants to know why he should help you. Show me your, the merits. Show me what you've done. You can't come in here dressed like this, looking like that, acting like that, and expect that I'll help you. Jesus is contrasting. He says, God is not like this man. He has chosen you. Remember not just how you pray, weak and fearless, but who you are praying to. He is God in heaven, Father, who loves you, who hears you, who actually is on the same side as you. You do not have to fight with him and pry things out of his hands because he, is, he has all the power but is unwilling to give it to you. But he is a God who has relationally bonded himself to you. Remember, we are weak, but we are audacious and fearless as we approach not someone we have to pry blessings out of his hand, not someone we have to convince to help us, but who has already bought us and brought us into his household. And so now this is like I've said to you so many times, the audacious, crazy things my children ask me for, the 11th cupcake with icing all over their face. They are not thinking, I'm not sure if I should ask him. They ask crazy stuff all the time. Why? because I am their father and they are in my household and they recognize, at least for now, I have some authority in the home. <laughs> and yet, they are quite uh, free to be relentless and throwing themselves on us over and over for whatever they want. This is, you understand, you laugh, you know, whether you have kids or you've seen kids do this. This, Jesus says, is your relationship with God. Remember who God is. This isn't a courtroom with an angry judge who does not want to give you what he has and is holding out on you and waiting for you to wear him down. How much more, Jesus is saying, will God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? It is a picture 
of who God is. Now you might say, okay. Some of you are like, yes, I believe that. I feel that. I have that experience. Others of you might say, okay, but then why if God is someone? In fact, he uses a very provocative word in here. Verse 7, will not God choose to bring about, or God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So this, we have a problem. Well, because there are many things that you and I, individuals, and I have the, the privilege of knowing many of you and what you are crying out to for God, and we have cried together in various ways but there are things I don't know about that you are going through. Justice issues, things that you're saying, God, like this shouldn't be. I have no power to fix this, but this shouldn't be right. Some of you are in professions, whether you're teachers or healthcare providers, or whatever, where daily you are faced with injustices, which things that break your heart and you think, how could a child grow up in a home like this? How could someone have this happen to them? How could a husband do this to a wife? How could a wife do this to a husband? And your heart breaks. There are things that we have cried out to God as a community, for in our backyard and across the world. So if God is like this and, and we, you know, we're pressed in our minds to say, okay, I know, I know, I know, he is good, he is Father. And he's saying, how much more will God give justice and quickly to those who cry out to him? So where is it, God? Is the missing piece of this story that Jesus delivers to us in the last verse that we read, verse eight. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith, or in other words, this kind of faith, on the earth? It is a reference to something that if we do not understand, we will not be able to persist in prayer. We will lose heart. It is the one thing actually as Christians that we must keep front and center in every prayer that we pray that will allow us to relentlessly pursue God in prayer for what justice issues we are facing, communally, individually, corporately and not lose heart. Jesus was reminding them, and it actually comes at the end, even though it's the beginning of chapter 18. I don't know why they put all the chapter numbers the way they did, because actually this one comes at the end of a whole section on Jesus talking about his return. That Jesus is coming back. And so here's the one-liner for you. Don't stop praying. Jesus will either come through or he'll come back. He'll either come through or he'll come back. Do you see that every prayer that we pray for justice has already been answered with a yes? Because when Jesus returns, remember we went through the book of Revelation. If you've never gone through it before, whatever, you can go back on our website and look at it. Ultimately, the book of Revelation, which describes to us how the end will be, not like all these apocalyptic films that are come out all the time, which is life is a beautiful story with a terrible ending, but life is terribly difficult with a beautiful ending. That's what the scriptures tell us. Jesus will come back to do what? Bring justice. The scriptures tell us that one day Christ will return to set everything right, to wipe away every tear, to get rid of pain for good, to deal with every injustice, to wipe out every power imbalance, every bit of oppression. Jesus is coming back. And so he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find this kind of faith? In other words, I'm either going to come through for you, but I am coming back. 
And every prayer that we pray, we actually need to remember, friends, even if Jesus answers your prayer for justice now, it is only temporary. What you get now is only temporary. If you get healing, you'll still eventually die. Every one of us does. No one's ever beaten it except Jesus. Whatever healing you get, it's temporary. Whatever relational mending you get, it's temporary. That relationship will end too when you die. Jobs, everything, whatever things we are crying out for, justice, there is an incompleteness to it even in the answers we get. And so we have to remember, okay, I'm not gonna give up because Jesus will either come through and give me this temporary, though it is, response, or he'll come back. And he will come back. And when he comes back, he promises to set everything right. Without that hope, friends, all we have is this life. And the Apostle Paul said, if the only hope we have as Christians is in this life, we're the most pitiful people on earth because we're crying out to a God in heaven who sometimes answers, sometimes doesn't, and it just all floats into nothingness. But no, when we remember, Jesus says, the Son of Man is returning. I've come now, yes, but I will come again. And when I come again, all of your prayers for justice will be answered finally, permanently, in more fullness and completeness and satisfaction than you could ever hope. Because every tear that he wipes now Another one will fall, and another after that, until he comes and finishes it for good. So don't give up. Don't give up praying. Don't stop. He'll either come through, and you will get what you are looking for, or he will come again, and it will be done for good. This is what faith looks like, Jesus says. This kind of faith, an acknowledgement of weakness, and yet a ridiculous, audacious boldness, a relentlessness in prayer that comes to a God that we know is good and hears us and says, God, answer me, answer me, answer me, and remembering, Jesus, you can either come through for me now or you'll come again. And sometimes, friends, it's not a bad thing. When we read prayers in Scripture, wow, when are you coming back, Lord? Sometimes we actually need to long for that day. Instead of just praying for temporary relief for what's going on, Jesus, when are you coming back to set all things right? I long for that day. So how do we respond? How do we engage in this kind of prayer in our lives? How do we become a little bit like this widow? I think there's two aspects of it. We need to make prayer personal and we need to make it perpetual. See, the woman had no problem in one sense coming back over and over because it was personal. It was a personal need. Every day she was living with the reality of her uh, empty bank account, her powerless situation, and an adversary who was coming against her. It was daily life for her, so she knew no other way. She had nothing else to do except come to this judge and say, I can't live unless you come through. It was completely personal for her, and so nobody had to tell her, you should be relentless about this. It was so personal for her. And so some of you, what I wanna say is, perhaps you feel like the widow. You are well aware of the injustices that you are dealing with, and it's personal for you, but perhaps you have grown tired. And so here's what I wanna say. Perhaps you need to share that burden with somebody else. Perhaps you need to make it personal for someone else. This is what we do for one another in the body of Christ, right? You are carrying a load, brother, sister, don't carry it by yourself. Let me go to heaven's door with you every day. And some of you think, oh, I know I don't want to burden other people. You're supposed to burden other people. That's why we're in the body of Christ together. I cannot carry this anymore myself. Can you share some of this load? 
I have been going to heaven's door over and over and I'm not getting what I want and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm gonna give up or I feel like I have given up, so can you lift it with me so I can carry it a little bit less, but we keep going together. So now there's two people pounding on this door or five people or 10 people, whether it's an individual, whether it's your home group, whatever it is. If you are burdened like that, if there is justice in your own life that you are seeking, whether it's physical, whether it's relational reconciliation, whether it's a, a, a situation where you are powerless against an employer, or perhaps you just have this burden that is so wearing you down for what you need to see. Perhaps it's the kids that you're entrusted with in your school. Perhaps it's the clients you uh, serve as a healthcare provider, whatever that is. You don't have to break confidence, but you can say, look, I'm dealing with a situation that is so overwhelming me. I can't carry this other person's burden. Can you carry it with me? Make it personal for someone else. And for those of you that say, if you haven't, if you haven't made a justice issue personal, make it personal. Some of us need to be rescued from our praying that has nothing to do with justice. It's just help me, bless me, make my life better. And you can pray those prayers. But we need to actually be burdened with the things that break the heart of God, have the things that break the heart of God break our heart, have things that we say, this isn't just not okay, this should not be. In the name of Christ, it should not be. And perhaps, I know for me, those kinds of prayers have rescued me from a dry prayer life that was all about me. When I begin to carry the burdens and make it personal, someone else, an individual, or some of you are big picture people, you grasp a situation, you're like praying about the Middle East, and some of you are like, I cannot pray about a geographic place on earth. I need something personal, so make it personal. If somebody begins or you have a hint that maybe somebody's carrying a burden, ask them more questions. Find out more because your goal in that conversation is to take it on yourself where you go away heavy. That's not a bad thing. We live in a culture that's so obsessed with happiness, we don't want to share each other's pain. We can't stand it because we're just so afraid. We're so, I can't handle that burden. Actually, what we need in many cases is to make it personal. And so some of you that are carrying those personal burdens, you need to be willing to seek people out. Others of you, as you sense it, as you see it on each other's face, ask questions and say, my goal here is actually to walk away a little bit heavier than when I came in because it's something I need to carry. And it's gonna drive me to heaven's throne over and over. Or perhaps some of the human trafficking thing or West Africa, you might say some of you are like, I don't know, I don't know anything about West Africa, I've never been. And sit down with someone, go out for lunch with someone who went, ask them questions, get a burden for it, begin praying. Come to the prayer meetings where we pray about this stuff. Get on the prayer list and start praying. Get burdened. Some of you, it is personal. You need to make it personal for someone else. Some of you, it's nothing personal yet. You need to be burdened and make it perpetual. Uh, last, a uh, couple months ago, I had an opportunity to go to California for a conference, and one of the speakers was named Charles Duhigg, and he wrote a book called The Power of Habit. Some of you may have read it or heard about it. And he was saying how, he gave this example about, he, they brought 1,000 people into a room and he was talking about how they'd done all this study with lab, lab rats and stuff, I won't bore you with that, but this idea of like, to actually introduce a habit in our lives, we need both a cue that, that trips a wire to make us do something and a reward that gives us a reward when we've done it. And so they, they uh, brought a thousand people in and they gave them a 20-minute lecture on the benefits of exercise and said all about it, why you should do it, here's what you should do. And they let a, a 900 of them go and then they kept 100 and they said, okay, uh, here's what we want you to do. You just heard the same lecture. We want you to put a pair of running shoes next to your bed every night. And so when you get up, you know, run. And every time you exercise, eat a piece of chocolate after. Okay, so introduce cue and reward. They brought those two groups back together a year later. The 900 group that had just heard the message on the benefits of exercise, about 16% of them who weren't before were exercising. In the other group, it was about 28%. It was not 100%. 
But the determination in his case was we need something that both trips the, the, the habitual patterns that we don't have to interrupt it to give us another cue and give a reward. And so here's what I'm going to say. Some of you just need to tie a prayer cue to a daily routine. Now you might say, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Shouldn't I just be burdened? Well, maybe. But you know what I found is the more I do something, even sometimes just out of obedience or repetition, it begins. When I start praying for somebody, even if I don't know them or whatever, and I'm praying continually, I'm finding more about them, even though I started to do it out of obedience or repetition or because someone pastor preached a sermon and started to do it, my heart actually began to open up for this thing. It's impossible. You cannot pray for something regularly without your heart actually opening up for it. And so some of you just need to say, yeah, yeah I want to do this, but I need something to interrupt my routine. So tie a prayer cue, whether it's a picture that is symbolic for you, that, that makes you pray, whether it's an actual picture of somebody or something, a verse or a symbol to a daily routine, whether it's a mirror or a steering wheel or the alarm clock that you smash when you get up in the morning or your phone on the background of your phone, whatever it is, get creative, get a cue that trips your wire saying, gotta pray for this every day, every day. And then reward yourself every time you pray. I don't know what that looks like, okay? Eat a piece of chocolate. And they asked actually the people who exercised at the end, what was, what's made the difference? They all said the chocolate. <laughs> who knew? There is something about training, retraining our minds and our bodies that is a biblical thing as well as a discipline to say like this is actually for joy. Over time, you know what the rewards and this is what happens. The more you exercise, actually the less chocolate you because you're like, you know what? I actually now feel the benefits in my own body because I'm faster or I feel better or my back doesn't hurt or whatever. Over time, the true benefits of exercise will be your reward. But initially you might say, well, I'm not doing this. So put something else in. Over time, what your rewards will be is when you begin to see God answering prayers and you say, I don't care how many else people in the world pray for that. I did. I'm claiming that one is mine. That's my answer to prayer. That's what will happen the more we begin to pray. And so I really believe, you know, some of you today need to make this personal for somebody else. You need to put a burden on somebody else saying, I can't carry this anymore. I need you to carry it with me. And you can use those exact words. Others of you need to say, yeah, I need to make something personal in my life because everything else is just about me and it has nothing to do with justice. It's just my comfort or my well-being. And there's lots of needs in this church, in any community, and the people around us, and the justice issues that we're dealing with. Friends, the more we do this, the more we become a community that actually knows how to suffer with hope. All right, we, have a, we, have, we live in a culture that it gets either buried by suffering or wants nothing to do with it because we want to live an illusion of happiness. And yet we know actually as Christians, eyes wide open, one eye on the world, one eye on God, and we say, okay, we are suffering now, yes, but not without hope. We are not those who suffer without hope. And if Jesus doesn't come through now, he's going to come again. The more we pray like this, the more we will be people that the rest of the world will say, can you help me through this because I don't know how to suffer with hope or I don't know how to take on another person's pain. Let's pray and invite the worship team to come and lead us. Jesus, this is the kind of faith that we want to have to be well aware of our weakness and yet so audacious and bold in our perpetual assault on the door of heaven. And we know as we do this, you are a good God, you are faithful, you are loving. And we admit we are very frustrated many times at your apparent lack of intervention. But we choose to remember as we do every week when we come and sing these songs, you are good, you love us, your love endures. We actually need faith to remember that you are who you say you are, that we can trust your words. And we thank you that even though some prayers for justice will go unanswered in this day, they are not ultimately unanswered, that Jesus, you will return. And so we long for that day when you will come and set things right on the earth. 
Teach us to be a people who suffer with hope. And that as we do, God, that you would bring a world around us that needs to know the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Addiction for you this morning is that you would be reminded that we serve and love and pray to a God who makes a way. Whatever that way forward looks like for you, whether you've been stuck or stalled or fearful or tired, that even this morning the Holy Spirit would be strengthening you and whatever way it is, God will make a way out of the darkness, through a wall that you can't seem to get through, up again when you have lost strength. I'm gonna bless you with the experience of God making a way for your path this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.